The great thing about information today is that everything is on the internet. One of the greatest dangers to our privacy and freedom is that everything about us is on the internet. Privacy, a core human right and pillar of a free society, is a topic of particular concern regarding personal data created by using online platforms such as social media and e-commerce. On the one hand, data is privately generated, often, inco often uh, inconsequential information about things like browsing habits and shopping inclinations. Other times, it could be essential information regarding deeply personal matters or politically consequential. Given that data privacy does not fit neatly fit into the traditional restraints on government surveillance, the question for our time is how to construct an effective regime that addresses pressing issues while preserving individual liberty and economic efficiency. Leslie Corbley, a, a policy analyst at the Libertas Institute and AIER visiting fellow, thinks she might have the answer. Welcome to the AIER Standard. I'm Ethan Yang. Our guest today is Leslie Corbley, who joins us today at our beautiful campus in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. Leslie graduated from the University of Oklahoma Law School, where she also received her undergraduate education in journalism and constitutional studies. She frequently writes about matters pertaining to privacy, law, and the administrative state. Leslie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, before we start, how are you enjoying our campus? Well, the campus is beautiful. I've, I've really enjoyed my stay here so far. I have roughly, I think, four to six weeks remaining, mm. and I've really been enjoying, of course, the change of leaves. The fall is just gorgeous out here. So, And mm. it's also perfect um, conditions for research. Of course. And that's, I guess that's probably why we built it. Um, Libertas, is that in Utah? Is that where you're based? Or is... It is. So it's based in Lehigh, Utah, near what we call the Silicon Slopes. So about roughly 30 minutes south of Salt Lake. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming this is much different weather than Utah. It is. Utah's leaves, I think, have already pretty much changed. Um, my husband said it's snowing out there mm -hmm. already. So we've got our first round of snow has hit Utah. Mm -hmm. Great, great. So I'm going to, first, I'm sure we've I'm sure most Americans have heard of the term data privacy, the term data, um, but there's plenty of studies that show that the majority of Americans, and including this one, uh, don't really know what data is. They just understand, like, you get the little box and you click, do you accept the, you know, the cookies for Google or whatever? Um, so can you explain what exactly is data and why is privacy in this regard important? Sure. So data actually encompasses virtually any type of information that, you, that goes onto the Internet. Of course, data in the real world would also be basically information you could collect and assimilate. So it's really broad, which is actually one of the reasons that it's so impactful, right? Because so much of our lives now flow through the digital medium that you're talking about a lot of information that could be consequential both now, but also something that could be consequential in the future. So it's difficult to predict uh, the value of data long term. Mm. And when we speak of data or data, how does it generate it? I know, at least from my limited knowledge, you go on a, you go on a website, um, then there's just basically starts generating data, like a history of your browsing habits, things you buy, that kind of stuff. So like, what exactly is it? Um, what sorts of forms can it take? Sure, it can take the digital where you're going on to um, a website and they're collecting information, for instance, some of which you just mentioned, which would be how long are you on the site? What pages are you looking at? Uh, so on and so forth. And some of that's really helpful uh, for basic uses, right? Like it's important to know for, for companies to know how long you may be on a site can help them make their product or service more useful for you in the future. So some of that is, is collected that way. And then there's also, of course, data that can be collected even on paper and then input mm. into a digital system and then analyzed that way. So, so it's, it's, 
really important, I think, to understand the breadth of which data covers. It covers a lot, not just of what you're doing online, but anything that could be taken and then analyzed through a digital means. Uh, so anything that could be input into, say, an algorithm or uh, other kind of software that can then analyze the information. So data essentially is just information. Mm. Um, at, at, at its core, that's what it is. Mm. And I guess what makes it different today is that previously information that maybe only you and maybe a few other people could know is now being generated on mass feed through your internet searches and whatnot. Exactly. That's exactly correct. Uh, it's, it's disseminated, it was collected, stored, and disseminated in rapid speed in a pretty much as diverse of forms as technology allows it to be mm -hmm. uh, collected, stored, and disseminated. So that's where you get uh, sort of this information overload that I think often we talk about in context of like social media or other types of digital platforms. It's that we're now um, in a society that runs on information mm -hmm. and information is power as mm -hmm. well. So you have to look at, okay, what are we doing with that information? And in what ways could that information be potentially used uh, for nefarious means? Mm -hmm. And I guess, can you give some examples of everyday data that maybe no one really cares about? And then the sort of data that we're concerned with uh, potentially making protections for. Sure. So everyday data that no one cares about, see, that's where it actually gets kind of complicated mm -hmm. because yeah. data that, would have been everyday data that no one cared about in the past could become data that's very influential to f in the future. So an example of that would be like your location data. Mm. Um, doesn't sound particularly consequential, right? Where you went sounds pretty innocuous, uh, but now there's the novel use of, or the use of novel investigative techniques such as geofence warrants, mm. where law enforcement draws a virtual boundary around a crime scene and then requests, say, all user data. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's initially anonymized on the front end, but then eventually it leads to unmasking, but mm -hmm. and that, that's an in example of how your location alone could become very impactful down the road, but generally would be considered fairly uh, innocuous, right? Oh, I went to Walmart isn't a particularly like valuable mm -hmm. piece of information. I don't, at least I, I think most people would think of that as being pretty innocuous, mm -hmm. uh, but it can take on sort of a different uh, characteristics down the road. Mm. So I guess, yeah, like the fact that I went to Walmart maybe no one cares today, but perhaps maybe there's a investigation of some kind, maybe a politically motivated one. Uh, maybe people are concerned, like who was at this Walmart on a particular day or who people who disagree with me, where are they going about? So that sort of data could be uh, become an issue in the future if not protected properly. Same with things like key keyword searches. Uh, so those keyword searches are actually really helpful for Google to store because they allow Google to provide you better search results in the future. So it's not as if they have no, um, no good outcomes that come. There's no positive outcomes that come from them tracking and storing what you search, but also the first um, mm -hmm. legal case regarding the police accessing reverse keyword searches was actually just initiated this year uh, because mm -hmm. they were searched the same type of reverse warrant. We want to look at keywords that were searched in a specific time frame. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's another example of something that could appear innocuous. Oh, I searched for some term and there could be any reason, right? That you or I would search for any number of, of key terms, uh, mm -hmm. but that took on sort of a different, it can take on a different use in the future than what you may have anticipated on the front end. Mm. I guess it also boils down to the ultimate uh, idea that even if it's just innocuous, this data is information about me, and I would not like people, random people, knowing what. Even if I'm just looking at cats on the internet, I don't want that. I don't cats on the internet all the way to my deepest personal secrets. <laughs> I don't want any of that getting out. And the internet's basically the perfect place for all that to get out. Exactly, it is, and that's where I, I also think it depends on the 
how likely it is to get out from a risk standpoint depends on the policies of the company themselves. And that's where I think the average person, you know, wouldn't be thinking, oh, man, to ask really intensive lines of questioning, for instance, of companies that they work with, particularly the larger companies that provide, like you say, a Google of the world where you're you're you know, working with them with goods and services where you wouldn't be thinking, oh, should I really do a deep dive into their what they do with my data, um, you know, on the front end, which is interesting on the risk analysis because you want to be asking that line of questioning. But due to the nature, as we've just been discussing of information itself, it's not particularly easy to do a thorough risk assessment on the front end because you don't really know what uh, characteristics different data may take on and different information may take on in the future. Mm. So that complicates uh, the sort of risk analysis from a consumer standpoint. Mm. And I want to dive into those risks, both posed by the government as well as corporations. So first on the government, I think many people might listen to what you just said about the reverse warrants and say, you know, this sounds like, don't we have a Fourth Amendment? Don't we have uh, laws in the books to say the government can't interfere with your privacy without, uh, well, uh, further cause? So, but then that's kind of like the crux of it, right? Data is not necessarily traditionally within those surveillance boundaries. It's almost like it's a private invention that we don't really know what to do with yet. Yes, exactly. And unfortunately, the jurisprudence as it relates to the Fourth Amendment went, it's like as we became a society that ran more on information that was being processed by third parties, the jurisprudence went the, went the opposite direction, right? Mm -hmm. So you have the third party doctrine, which holds you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy and information once you hand it over to a third party. Mm -hmm. Even if it's say like your banking uh, information, where confidentiality would be assumed and like on the front end, you still lose an, a privacy expectation once you hand it over to a third party. So you're seeing the court kind of move uh, further in the direction of saying, okay, there's a reasonable expectation of privacy, say, in cell site location information, that, that sort of thing. But, um, you know, that line of cases is still very impactful because you still have the third party doctrine and the reasonable expectation of privacy that govern at the Supreme Court level. Uh, so that in a society now, again, that's moving more towards everything you do being processed by a third party, that poses some difficulties as far as what is your privacy expectation. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to the jurisprudence on privacy, I'm, I'm assuming it maybe is the most strong on just very blatant issues that result, maybe result in criminal prosecution or what have you. But the mass amount of information out there, like our Google searches or our buying histories or where we were on a particular day, I'm assuming many, much of that information is not yet neatly decided, like this is protected, that's not protected, and the government pr pretty much has firsthand um, say on whatever what, what is done with that privacy or You're that data. Absolutely correct. There's a lot of ambiguity, gray areas in the law with you know Supreme Court just touching things like self-site information location, CSIL. Uh, you know, that's the tip of the iceberg mm -hmm. <laughs> as it relates to the kind of information that's out there that is routinely processed uh, digitally. It's it's just a tip of iceberg. And it's not the kind of issue that can be neatly or easily resolved at Supreme Court level. You know, uh, Justice Alito hinted at that, saying, really, there's a role for legislatures to play because mm -hmm. it's not simple for the court to just make all the rules that govern uh, in relation to privacy because it's, you're right, there's too many situations that aren't going to fit neatly within a juris, any jurisprudential framework, uh, mm -hmm. but certainly not in the one we currently have. And also these these uh, technologies are far, far more well-developed um, than anything the founders could have possibly anticipated. So you ha it's a matter of also how do we take these principles, which are sound, these constitutional, constitutional principles that, that I believe are, are still sound, but how do we apply them in a world that has completely different technological landscape than, you know, the 
late 18th century. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to, I guess, um, concerns that consumers might have with a private company, so the government surveillance part, I think it's very obvious, um, very much fits within uh, the conversations regarding data pri or privacy in general. What are the sorts of things that might compel private citizens to want to uh, put restrictions on how private companies use your data? I think private citizens should be very concerned about possible very, very close relationships between corporate entities and the government. Mm. I think that's one thing in particular that should raise a lot of alarm alarm like red flags for a consumer is what is the relationship say with law enforcement um so for instance ring allows law enforcement in the case of exigent circumstances which is a legal term of our um as i'm sure you're aware that essentially says that there's an emergency and ongoing mm -hmm. uh, imminent threat right mm -hmm. uh, that would then allow them to access say like doorbell footage mm -hmm. so for ring surveils around your um your property basically it's ensuring that you feel safe in your home right if there mm -hmm. was some kind of someone trying to steal something from you or a porch pirate something like that it can have it recorded which of course is fantastic for you know people to feel safe and secure in their homes but i don't think a lot of consumers necessarily know that law enforcement would be able to access this that the company would be perhaps providing access uh, in certain narrow circumstances so that's an example uh and then of course there's, there's other examples, you know, the NCLA, New Civil Liberties Alliance, mm -hmm. it's bio, it represents plaintiffs in the ongoing suit against the Biden administration in relation to how collaborative their um, communication was with, with regard to content moderation on mm -hmm. social media sites such as Facebook and Twitter. So that's another example of is, you know, to what extent is the government heavily influencing corporate behavior, mm. I think should be on the radar of private citizens because it is a very different situation if you as a private citizen are working directly with a company versus there being heavy input from the government mm. involvement there. And a lot of this, we don't, when you, for example, if you bought Ring or I heard a story that Alexa, Amazon Alexa called the police on a, when it overheard domestic violence, of course we applaud these developments, but at the end of the day, that's private companies without your knowledge, collaborating with the government, who knows what's next. So is there any sort of um, like framework for regulating that? Is there, do people even know that they're consenting to any of this? That's where it becomes more complicated because Ring has all of these policies clearly laid out on their website, but most people are likely not going right to their website to, hey, what's Ring's privacy policy? They're likely seeing an advertisement that probably doesn't highlight some of these uh, features, right? Oh, we, we work with law enforcement. It's probably not gonna be a feature highlighted in mm -hmm. right, a radio ad or, um, an advertising you may see on your cell phone, mm -hmm. right? So some of it, I think, is this, the almost ubiquitous issue you have now of so much information, even on one product, that I think consumers may not inherently know where to go to mm -hmm. find applicable information that they may care about, but may not initially think of when they're assessing whether to use a product or service, mm -hmm. right? They would, I just don't think very many people, if they're looking at, hmm, I'm really considering a survey or a security system, are gonna think, make the jump to go, I saw an advertisement or may have seen how the product or service works. Let me now think to go off and really dig into their website policies. Right. Mm -hmm. I just, I don't think a lot of people are thinking that way. So I think some of that just is almost a, a problem of how do you help consumers to begin assessing who, what, what products and services they're going to use by including a privacy uh, like risk assessment. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And a lot of companies, I, f I feel like, just have there's different companies have different privacy standards because I know Apple is kind of hailed as the gold standard and like when they there's a whole store where they feel they've 
refused to give a backdoor to, I think it was like the police or whatever is like, so I think, I guess you might have Apple on the high end and I'm sure other companies have lesser standards, but then the day, like nobody really knows. The only reason why I know Apple has strong protections because there was a whole news story about um, just not collaborating with the police. So uh, is that something that consumers should be, do you, ever, do you ever see hope for that? Like, is, cause do you think privacy concerns or regulation or not privacy guarantees are just fine legal fine print that the average consumer is never going to read? I think it is right now. I don't think it has to be that way. I, to your point with Apple, they do do a very good job. So for instance, with the geofence warrants, the one of the most common recipients of that type of warrant where they're saying, here's a virtual boundary and a crime happened at Friday at 8 a.m. near a Walmart. Let's just hypothetically say that. They send these off into mobile companies, T-Mobile, Verizon, AT&T, and Google's one of the most common recipients. As to Apple, they have been able to avoid having to comply with these warrants because they don't collect the type of data that mm. would be necessary for compliance. So they can say to the government, you know, if they get one of these warrants, we don't have that data, so we can't hand it to you. Mm. Right? We don't. And so it's, that's a collection, um, how they internally collect data really matters, how a company internally collect it, collects data really matters. And that's, again, these are like more fine technical points that I don't think is on the consumer's radar right now. That doesn't mean that won't change, right? I think uh, in the marketplace, it's my hope that consumers will start to better understand that asking questions and being aware of how your, collect your data is collected, stored, and disseminated is really important as to um, you know, the worth of a product or service mm. because an, uh, a business model that works on more of an advertising, right. Where they're, they're needing to mine your data more to make the service more valuable to you on, as a user also means that to some degree you're the product. Mm. Right. And I just, I don't think this is a typical way a consumer would think, but I think that there's that, that hopefully is changing, particularly with more digital natives who are, I think are a little more aware of some of, uh, some of these issues from having lived, their whole lives with technology. Hmm. And when it comes to, I think you mentioned the term business model, which I think introduces sort of like the tension between data regulation and just the importance of having data just kind of out there for businesses to use. And it's sort of like you need to balance the sort of human rights component of protecting your data. And also, you know, a lot of this is pretty efficient stuff. It helps companies uh, sell products, market products. I think most, many consumers like the fact that they're, um, like their advertisements are more tailored to, to them. They're not getting useless advertisements of things they won't buy. So can you talk a little bit more about sort of like that when you're, if we're going to design a policy or a law, what, like what are sort of the competing um, considerations that we need to have? Sure. So the competing considerations would be respecting really people's right to their privacy, to some kind of, um, ability to control your data in a way that you currently can't. I do think it would be better if users both understood the value of their data more, right? That there's act, it actually has a lot of value. It doesn't necessarily in an individual, but in the aggregate, which is what mm -hmm. the internet is, it's like the aggregate of all of our data is very impactful. So understanding there's a value attached to that data is really important and understanding that issues of control are also very important. Who controls the data? You know, who mm -hmm. can, who can do what with your data? Is, and so finding ways, in my view, to decentralize that process, right? Models that may decentralize where the data is stored, um, it makes it more secure because it's, a la I mean, first of all, of course, if you have a bunch of powerful information in one place, it's going to be more likely, mm -hmm. you know, whoever has a, may have a nefarious motive would be much more likely to go to that source, mm -hmm. right? To hack it, um, which is, which is an important aspect of that. But um, the tension there is that 
there is a convenience aspect that you may lose, right? And you also don't want to craft a solution that, say, requires companies to collect more data than they otherwise would. Mm. So say like the Apple model where they're they're being very cautious on the front as to what they collect, what they store, and the, the practices they use there. And you wouldn't want a model that would, say, require Apple to collect information they may otherwise collect or store it in ways that they may not otherwise have chosen to store it that requires them to um, perhaps comply with, like, let's say they were there was a regime in place at the time that they were crafting their privacy um, policies internally, not just their privacy policy that you agree to, but sort of how they collect data writ large. And it required them to collect data they otherwise would not have. Then when law enforcement requests that data – they're more likely to comply. So you mm. think that that's some things that are really important to look at is are we accidentally or unintentionally causing more privacy harm than good when we regulate? Mm. Those are some things to look at. And jumping into the substance of some research that you've done, um, there are a number of major privacy policies on the books. The GDPR in Europe is the most famous one. And then you mentioned that California and Utah also have their own emerging, emerging doctrines. So, But you also mentioned that especially the GDPR, which has basically been hailed as like the major uh, law in the books, just has like a lot of shortcomings, particularly when it comes to efficiency, making just making it difficult for companies to compete in the work in, in the marketplace in general, and then perhaps not even addressing the privacy concerns in the first place. So I was wondering if you can get into a little bit of that. Absolutely. So some of the concerns with these larger data privacy frameworks, such as GDPR and the CCPA, is that they really entrench the status quo, and mm. they tend to work in favor of existing entities and sort of freeze the power structure such that new emerging companies struggle to compete. The reason for that being when there's any regulatory framework, complying with that framework is much more of a cost burden to upstart companies than to entrenched firms that have the resources, money, um, and have been in the marketplace longer. So they kind of know the lay of the regulatory landscape better and are more well-prepared to address any new changes in that landscape. New upstart companies <laughs> would struggle mm -hmm. much more to comply. So that's one of the problems that you have there, as is the issue with possibly, um, you know, politically motivated um, enforcement actions, right? It's usually the government that's empowered with enforcing these mm -hmm. these new laws. Uh, and so you then run into kind of some of the classic issues you even have with antitrust, right? Where mm -hmm. the government doesn't get involved in certain cases where it arguably should and does get involved in others where maybe it arguably should not. So you have this sort of what I would see as troubling potential for companies to care much more about pleasing the government mm. in relation to their privacy policies and how they handle these concerns than consumers, because who has the power to potentially put them out of business mm. or to cause a major headache for them? Well, it's going to be the government through an enforcement action. So then who are they catering their privacy policies to? Is it really the public or is it going to end up being the government? Mm. So you're talking about just the fundamental tension of the government essentially setting all the rules right now. And then consumers just really have no clue what they want. And so there's really no unified consumer voice, but there's a very strong consolidated government mandate that's basically in your, uh, I guess what you're saying is that if that's all there is, then basically privacy rules and regulations, even the private sense uh, will naturally just drift towards whatever the government wants it to be, regardless of whether consumers, um, what, whatever consumers want, uh, unless they form some sort of conscious of what they actually want when it comes to their privacy. Absolutely, because with consumers, it's going to be much more, right, almost through the creative destruction emergent process. It's not going to be this at one point in time, consumers say this is what they want. It's going to be a lot of voices sort of 
moving uh, the marketplace in one direction or another. And if you get the government coming in, creating these large overarching top-down frameworks, it sort of stifles the ability mm -hmm. of that to work. So an example of this would be the way common law actually dealt with privacy concerns. So in 19 or 1890 is when Warren and Brandeis had their, you know, the first right to privacy article that came out in the Harvard Law Review. And then it was a, a long time after that, that, you know, Prosser identified the four privacy torts that are now considered the, the common law privacy torts. And there's, there's four of them. And that, that took a while to emerge. And now it's those torts that ended up being the basis, right, of certain codify, the codification of statutes that govern at the state level, you know, how individuals the certain rules that individuals can't overstep in relation to privacy concerns. So this would be, you know, say, I don't know if you're, if you're aware of the revenge porn statutes, but it's things of that nature that are saying you can't record mm. certain intimate acts and then publish them. Mm. Like you're on the hook, you're liable for that. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's things like this that emerged over time and through the, through the, the common law system. If that had been like a top down approach, I think it arguably would have gone worse right? Because you was in a time of disruption in the digital market. I know we don't think of wi uh, wiretapping laws and things like that as being digital, but that was the start, right? Of, of mass communication, the likes of which had to have come before we could have had the internet. So it, if there had been sort of a top-down approach at that time, I think it arguably would have gone worse mm. for consumers. So you're bringing up a very interesting topic I want to get to, um, which is essentially a spontaneous order for good privacy regulation emerging from like emergent consumer preferences. But before we get there, I kind of want to at least first at the table, um, you've mentioned that the GDPR and laws like it are just too complicated, often um, sort of a fusion between state and corporate interests that really don't benefit anybody except for incumbents. And on top of that, it doesn't really address many of our privacy concerns. So can you talk a little bit about sort of more about those shortcomings? Um, why shouldn't the U.S. just, you know, copy Brussels immediately? Or why is California's emerging uh, property right, uh, privacy rights law not, not really the gold standard? Sure. I don't think that they address the real problems with, with privacy. I think that's the root of it. Uh, <clears throat> the problems with privacy aren't going to be something you can put into a data privacy framework because it transcends just the data privacy nature of it, right? Um, I think specifically it doesn't undercut what my view is the biggest threat, which is the in issue of governments being able to access or control um, private databases to achieve government ends. I think that's actually the biggest issue in my view, because like you mentioned with spontaneous order, you once government is involved in that picture um, of, of really controlling and manipulating how firms handle privacy, it sort of halts that emergent order, right? It, mm -hmm. it can't occur under those conditions because because the, the, the government um, has too much power, right? In, mm -hmm. in the sense that one firm will never have the kind of, and I think there's a concern with that. And I understand it because firms right now like Facebook and Google, they do have a tremendous amount of power over individuals. I mean, that's just the reality of it. If for instance, you can't get your advertisements through, through Google ads for some reason, let's say that's halted, you're really stymied in the marketplace, the mm -hmm. ability to connect with your possible uh, customers. Like that's just a reality that we face right now. But Google is not forever in the same way that the government is. And so I think that it really doesn't address the root of the problem, uh, which is the, the centralization of data and personal information. In my view, the biggest issue with that is not what the company has or what the company can do, but the, uh, the ability of governments to access that resource um, and use it for their own ends. Mm. So let's talk about 
sort of the solution you pose in your research. You talk about a system called uh, self-governance for data regulation. So what would, you, what would you say are the core tenets that support that? Sure. So the core tenet of that concept is really that in order for us to maintain self-governance, we have to have some type of an ability of individuals to be disconnected from the collective. And I would argue that this is an issue both at the consumer, like in the consumer realm, just how we engage with society through the use of the internet, I think is part of the problem, but also the appetite for governments to engage in surveillance models, even in the West has really increased. So Houston and San Francisco are examples of this, where they're now, both cities are wanting to require certain businesses to automatically um, allow police access to their like cameras, like camera footage, mm -hmm. uh, surveillance footage, things of this nature. And when you, when you have these, the concept of self-governance and surveillance don't really go together. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and the same I would say is true of potentially heavy handed government manipulation of information. So this would be, for instance, the, the concerns that the plaintiffs in this NCLA lawsuit have of to what extent is the government attempting to jawbone or bully uh, mm. corporate entities into having content moderation policies they otherwise may not have. These are much are very troubling, in my view, as far as to maintain self-governance, you have to have some the ability, at least, of citizens to access accurate information, uh, to not have information censored, and to be able to know that they have a sense of solitude and separateness. Okay, I can separate myself from society and think through these issues. If not, you may end up in a situation where everyone's sort of constantly connected to the collective. And then there's a difficulty with individuals even at the ideation phase of thought conceiving of themselves as separate entities that can make, uh, you know, separate decisions. Mm. And is the, would such a model, would that come through the, the legislative process, making rules and laws via the state, or is this more going towards a, let's first, let's teach everybody about data privacy, let's let people develop their own preferences and sort of allowing that to naturally carry out through the marketplace? Is there sort of a neat path in either direction? It's a both and approach, in my view. I do think there are some targeted uh, policies that legislatures can adopt to, in my view, what I guess would be called putting a wall of separation between corporations and state actors mm. so that this is not a porous, necessarily easy relationship, very collaborative. If you, I was reading the lawsuit um, documents from the NCLA, NCLA lawsuit, so a lot of the discovery that's coming out of that lawsuit really shows how collaborative the relationships are. You mm. know, the emails between the corporate actors at Facebook and Twitter and government actors, say CDC, White House officials and whatnot, is very collaborative. It's really reads as more, almost as if they're coworkers mm. and on the same team. And that I do think is too close <laughs> of a relationship. Mm -hmm. I think there could be ways to separate that. So there's more friction, right? And more formalized processes for government agents to access, um, you know, corporate databases. I don't think that should be just an easy you know, snap my fingers and I can access what I want. I think there needs to be more friction there. That's where the legislative solutions I do think can have a lot of um, power. That being said, culturally speaking, if, if everything eventually moves more towards a very open source model, it's very difficult to stop government from accessing that, right? So for instance, right now, you can't stop government from going on and tracking. If someone has all their life publicly available, it's difficult, if not impossible, to stop the government from accessing that information. So I think that there's a cultural element at play that I, I do think liberty-minded folks such as myself should care about, which is how do we culturally defend self-governance, right? Mm -hmm. And culturally say you need to personally 
have some kind of a boundary and be more intentional with your use of, um, you know, different internet devices, right? Such that you're not just allowing, um, you know, society and culture to move in a direction where individualism is, is sort of almost maybe viewed as passe. Mm. Right. Mm. I think we really, people really underrate that cultural component that you just brought up. Cause I don't think it just applies to privacy. I'm sure people might think, Oh, like a cultural shift about privacy rights. When that's gonna, when is that gonna happen? But if you actually look at um, many of the things that the government tried to take, basically take an affirmative step on, and then followed by society, probably in a better direction. Would maybe civil rights? I think are a good are a good thing. Um, I guess like our acceptance of women and minorities is probably a, a classic case of. Sure, the government may have made some rules. They may have had some effect. But at the end of the day, the reason why we're less racist and less sexist in society is not necessarily because of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Is just because we as people have just had these conversations and decided that, you know, it's not acceptable to, you know, abuse women and abuse minorities. Like, this is a mostly a cultural point and the government might maybe able to grandstand and say, oh, we passed like X law. But at the end of the day, it's mostly just people collectively saying that um, this cultural norm is something worth adopting. I, I completely agree. You can't you can't legislate your way to someone valuing their privacy rights. It's just not possible. You can, again, create more friction between corporations and government entities that can do a good job of at least making sure I view those as almost like a stopgag. Like mm. we can stop this problem from getting worse. It's sort of like you want to stop the bleeding, but we, you can't stop individuals from voluntarily handing over rights that may otherwise should not waive. Right. Like even in law, you can waive rights that have that mm. give you tremendous advantages and power. And, 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 you know, are designed to protect you. But if you waive them, if you just say, I don't choose not to exercise this right, mm. I choose to, you know, to maybe do what's not in my best interest, it's difficult to protect against that legislatively. And I think that there is a lot of opportunity right now. I think people are starting to better understand that there's a problem. Because some of it is that we, these are issues that have been metastasizing now for over a over a hundred years, right? I mean, the adoption of mass communication really started with the telegraph, uh, the introduction of photographs. These were the initial, very first uh, fights that were occurring over privacy, right? Can you mm -hmm. use someone's um, image to sell flour? Was mm -hmm. one of the first like mm -hmm. privacy-driven common law cases. So these issues have been really building over a century. And during the 20th century, the U.S. was a fairly clearly not perfectly, but fairly high trust society, right? Some of these problems um, that were, that are emerging now, uh, right, with high, high polarization and deep distrust within the population, I see as, obviously I'm not pleased with that, but it's mm. an opportunity to help people understand and help the public understand that, that these are the reasons you need to have a degree of separation where you have your own sense of solitude, your own sense of separateness from society. It's not about isolating and going off, you know, and living as a, mm -hmm. <laughs> as a recluse. That's not what it's about at all. But you can go way too far the other way as well, right? Where things are too open, where there aren't enough, you know, boundaries of where individuals can feel secure and separate. Mm. And as if they have their own private life that um, does not involve uh, the broader community in any you know, in any sense. And so I think that there's, there's openings for that. Mm. So I guess, uh, a, a, a simple, a more simple version of what you just said would be, you want people basically how we learn to don't click the suspicious email. No, like, you know, like grandpa, don't click the phishing scam, that kind of stuff, that sort of stuff. I'm sure when the internet first started, there's a reason why those strategies are a thing is probably cause I'm sure it worked. Um, back when th that was actually um, effective. And now today we all think it's a joke, like phishing scams and whatnot. But then I'm sure they they were created because at one point I'm sure they were effective. 
And the same thing needs to happen when it comes to our cultural norms surrounding privacy. Like right now we have no clue what's going on, uh, but eventually we do need people to be responsible and uh, you, like maybe prefer companies with better policies. Mm -hmm. It's not something that the government, and the government can't make a law saying like no more phishing scams. Like there's always gonna be phishing scams. So um, just like how the government maybe might not, might not be able to make the most perfect data regulations, I don't, it's probably not even the place for the government to do that in the first place. That's our job uh, to develop cultural preferences surrounding good data governance. Exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, it's, you know, the concepts that our founders routinely discuss, which is if you lose personal responsibility and you lose that desire to maintain your free will, self-governance will sort of collapse because mm. it can't. It's only able to be supported when there's um, the conditions that allow it to flourish. And so that's where I do think the cultural element really needs to be discussed of we are responsible for maintaining freedom for future generations. Like that is the responsibility of each generation. Right. Um, mm. And when you a lot of that comes down to how response, how much responsibility do we as individuals adopt towards ensuring that whatever the challenge of our time is, is met appropriately, right? Each era is going to have a different challenge to self-governance. I think it is right now, in large part, a function of what role do we want tech to play? Mm. It's not obviously not to say it's, I'm not anti-tech. I have no issue with the development of technology and innovation. It does amazing things for our lives. I mean, think of what the pandemic would have been like without the ability to mm -hmm. to have access to you know zoom and remote work and it, it would have been objectively worse and technology can do fantastic things but like any um like anything in life it, it has you know trade-offs and so you need to appropriately integrate it into you know social life such that self-governance is remains possible and you know it could go either way right it's it's not a um technology is neither a perfect good nor something that we should toss aside or be afraid of. I don't think that the, a fear-based approach is, is remotely helpful, um, but I do think that there needs to be an honest evaluation of how do we as individuals, which is why I talk about intentionality, we need to be intentional as to how we use these these new technologies because there will be maybe a technology that makes a lot of sense for Ethan to use that makes no sense for Leslie to use, mm -hmm. right? Like what's it doing for you can help that kind of questioning of the technology at an individual level can help you assess what are the trade-offs for you and do, does it make sense for you to adopt it, right? Sort of not taking a knee-jerk rejection or knee-jerk adoption of new technologies, but rather looking at the trade-offs um, from a, an honest, objective, realistic lens and saying, what am I willing to forego and what am I not? Hmm. So I guess your solution ultimately would be there might be some regulations that are necessary, whether that's barring the government from accessing certain types of data, perhaps um, the ability to sue companies that that have da data breaches or give your information out in a way that society ultimately deems unfavorable. But most of the good changes are going to come from just norms that develop privately rather than on the government side. Absolutely. I think to the first two points, I would say maybe there's three points I might hear. Yes, absolutely want to make sure there's separation between government entities and corporate entities. To the extent there's penalties to companies, I absolutely agree that looking at it from a more security rather than privacy standpoint makes a lot of sense because you do want to incentivize companies to have strong security measures, right? So that mm you don't want it to be easy for third parties to access that data. So I think that it, to the extent the government has a role to play when regulating companies, focusing on the security aspect would be the, a far better incentive structure because it's simple, right? You don't need a complicated law to govern this, just that it could almost be a codification of some other common law rights that, you, mm -hmm. that have been around for a very long time related to, uh, you know, um, 
being upfront with your consumer about risks and things like that uh, and, and making sure that there's that their data or whatever it is you're collecting is secure, particularly as it relates to, you know, things like email addresses, uh, names, um, <laughs> certainly any kind of like financial data you may have, mm-hmm. wanting that to be secure. And then the third part, I do think needs there needs to be a cultural revival of how, in what ways do we want to relate as a society? Because some of those fundamental questions I think are coming out mm. in relation to privacy and, and technology use, right? It really upended the way we socially relate because it's no longer physically bounded, right? You can relate to anyone across pretty much any geographic boundary. So that sort of changed the nature of what we conceive community to be. And so there's a lot of um, issues that come up with that, right? If you're relating primarily to those not physically close to you, uh, that's going to have profound implications for how much data you're putting out there and how much of it's deeply personal, Hmm. right? If your closest friends or closest um, human relationships aren't close by to you, you're much more likely, right, to be sharing a lot of heavily sensitive information digitally because Hmm. that's that's how you're relating to those you care about. So I think that 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 is good in a way, right? I mean, think of how many, at least I think of how many people I don't live close by to anymore, but that I still keep up with via, you know, texting or, you know, other types of digital communication. So that's fantastic. But I think that there needs to be an aspect of how do we want to relate and and what technologies do we want to use and to what end and, you know, looking at simple things like, is your platform encrypted? Right. So like Signal would be an example of a much more secure messaging app um, as opposed to say something like Facebook Messenger. Hmm. So I'd like to end on one final question, which would be, I'm sure many of our listeners are hearing the cultural argument, the self-responsibility component. And we're thinking, of course, it makes sense. This has worked for ages. But I think when it comes to any sort of liberty based solution, we always run into the same problem, which is. Uh, when you see a big law in the books like the GDPR, other very, other really far-reaching data protection laws, it's really easy for you know many people to just look at the law and be like, "Hey, look, there's a law; it must work." Uh, and then they'll look at the cultural arguments and maybe think it's too abstract, mm-hmm. um, doesn't seem realistic, and especially since we come both from a legal background, you know, many people, especially rule makers, lawmakers, just look at you know shiny rules like mm-hmm. the GDPR. Um, and just, you know, there's all sorts of buzzwords thrown around, like, you know, global global standards and uh, goals, like just setting basic norms and whatnot. So how do we, it's been, and I guess in my opinion, it's an uphill battle. So like, how do we go about uh, basically getting past that bias for shiny comprehensive rules, especially when those rules kind of predated um, the, the, I guess, the more preferable cultural revolution that we want to happen? Sure. It's an, you're right that it's an uphill battle because it's easy to look at, hey, this could be a framework and it may not be perfect, but it's better to have a legal framework than no legal framework. And I understand that. But I do think there's risks that go beyond just the privacy legislation itself. So take something like the CCPA or some of these other regulatory frameworks. I think you run into the issue of are you really at what point are we wanting their jurisdictional boundaries to collapse? Hmm. Right. Because you look at some of these frameworks, you go, okay, just because Europe adopted it and then we adopt some, let's say something that models the GDPR, at what point are you sort of um, allowing governance instead of occurring at the more locally decentralized level that, you know, is sort of the trademark of American federalism? Are we kind of moving away from that and towards, Mm. oh, this is the most restrictive law, therefore that's what we're going to adopt so Mm. that it applies to everyone? But that's not an issue that's just going to touch with privacy, right? You think about the other jurisdictional issues that that could entail in the regulatory environment, right? I think that could incentivize um, 
those jurisdictions that have the the greatest appetite to regulate heavily to then do so with the anticipation that that may end up becoming the norm across multiple jurisdictions, not just the one for which that, um, you know, those lawmakers govern. And that, I think, touches on larger, broader problems. And that would, in my view, be a strong reason to question, is this the right move? Do we really want to begin incentivizing, hey, California passed this law. Now we want it to just begin to apply across, to, across the whole nation. Hmm. And I guess some some of the... Um... This is more speculative, but I was speaking to someone from IBM the other day, and he just kind of mentioned that we might even, we might even just grow past the need for regulation with blockchain or some sort of other private sector solution. Just why are we talking about just having this whole conversation about government? Let's just do the whole leapfrog around it. Um, but Leslie Corbley, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you. Leslie Corbley is a research analyst at the Libertas Institute, as well as a visiting fellow here at AIER. If you liked what you heard today, make sure to follow AIER on all our various media channels, such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Spotify, as well as check out our website at AIER.org. If you really liked what you heard today and want to support more cutting-edge researchers like Leslie, make sure to become a donor. All that information and more can be found at AIER.org. Thank you. Thank you.